dismissed now for the scripture time that you would like. I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. We'll be looking at Matthew chapter 7, and you'll find Matthew 7 on page 812 if you're using the Bibles that are provided in the backs of the chairs for you. Have you ever heard or used this phrase before? Don't judge me. There's often a a humorous element to it in playful conversation. Sometimes people are sharing something that sort of embarrasses them a little bit, or they may feel could be a little too transparent of a thing to say, and then they tack on that phrase in order to try to garner a little sympathy or plead their case for being only human. You may hear it in a humorous fashion like that. You may also hear or use it in a not-so-humorous fashion. Perhaps someone believes or says or does something that some or many in their community or their family or their social circles deem inappropriate or immoral, and in the course of a debate or discussion, the person then cries out in an effort to defend themselves, don't judge me. I actually thought about titling this sermon, Everyone's Favorite Bible Verse. Because whether you believe in God or not, or whether you embrace Scripture as the inspired and infallible Word of God or not, and whether you've trusted in Jesus for salvation or not, you've probably heard this verse and maybe even quoted it in a situation such as the example I just, examples I just shared. But what did Jesus mean when he originally said these words? And what should they then mean to us as we read and believe and put them into practice. I hope that we'll have a a clearer understanding of the answer to that question by the time we're finished this morning because there is a lot of misunderstanding of what these words mean. We live in a culture and a society that is utterly terrified of making declarations of right and wrong for fear of being canceled or judged, or for fear of being even seen as being judgmental. You can't really win, can you? It's a little ironic, isn't it? You'll be judged as being judgmental. And while the world certainly misses the mark regarding what Jesus meant in Matthew 7, 1 and 2 in particular, sadly there are many Christians who fail to understand it as well, and so we need the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts and minds to what this passage teaches, because as it turns out, what Scripture teaches is that both being judgmental and not exercising discernment is wrong. Jesus, the king of the unexpected kingdom, is in the middle of this great discourse, the great sermon on the mount, wherein he has turned upside down a lot of what the Jews thought and practiced and has showed them that while they thought that they were avoiding condemnation by their external rigid conformity, their hearts condemned them. He's also showed them that even their righteous practices were stained by sin. 
And now he is showing them that their focus should have been on God and his righteousness and the kingdom of heaven and not the kingdom of this world, the sovereignty of God, not the stresses of this life. And when Matthew continues his record of Jesus' teaching in what we now have recorded as chapter 7, the trajectory is the same. Jesus continues with this final, these final two stop statements with this prohibition, judge not, or we could say stop judging. Verses 1 and 2 say, judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What Jesus is saying here is that harsh judgment is dangerous. There's apparently a cause and effect thing going on here. If you judge others, you will be judged, is essentially what verse 1 is saying. And what is this word translated judge for us? It's a pretty broad word, actually. It can refer to judicial rulings. It's clearly not what Jesus is talking about here because the context uh, has to do with interpersonal relationships, not legal proceedings. Just like he didn't mean that you should never take an oath in a court of law when he talked about oaths in chapter 5. In the same way, he doesn't mean here that there's no place for courts and lawyers and, and judges. So it's not that. The word can also refer to discernment. But as we'll see in just a few minutes, I don't think that's what Jesus is prohibiting either. Exercising wise and godly discernment is commended in Scripture. The word translated judge can also refer to what we might think of as judgmentalism. And I think that's a word that helpfully gets at what Jesus is getting at here. It's the same thing that a couple of apostles talk about in their letters. Turn to Romans chapter 14. Turn or scroll as you prefer. Romans chapter 14 verses 1 through 4. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Look down at verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. It is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Turn then over to James chapter 4. Getting towards the end of the New Testament, just a few books from the end. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. James 4, 11 and 12. 
Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge your neighbor? What Paul is talking about in Romans 14, what James is talking about in James 4, and what Jesus is referring to in Matthew 7 is a heart attitude that stands in the place of judgment and discernment that belongs to God. Now, what Jesus is prohibiting here isn't any kind of discernment. It's not thinking at all about what others are doing. He's not saying that offering constructive criticism is not allowed. He's certainly not calling for the turning of a blind eye to decisions regarding right and wrong. But what he is saying is that kingdom people do not regard themselves as being in God's place of discernment and judgment because they can't see hearts. They don't know things perfectly. They're not without sin And so they should not cast the first stone. And so if and when the people of God are in a position to make a judgment, they're gracious in their judgment, not harsh. They're charitable, not critical. They're patient. They're not swift to anger, whether that anger is righteous or not. You see, Jesus is once again calling out, as he has done time and time again, and will continue to do throughout the book of Matthew, calling out self-righteousness. Judgmentalism comes from a heart of self-righteousness. Self-righteous people believe they're more mature, more spiritual, more knowledgeable, more capable of whatever it is they think they're better at than others. There is a word that John Stott, the great 20th century British theologian and pastor and commentator, uses in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount regarding this very passage. And it's a word that I suspect you did not use this last week. It's the word censoriousness. I bet you, you did not use that word. But you can hear in that word the root, censor. Censor, C-E-N-S-O-R, censor. And a a censor is essentially, if you look up a definition, a supervisor and examiner of conduct and morals. And so what Stott is saying is that Jesus is prohibiting the regard for oneself as being in the place of a supervisor and examiner of others' conducts and morals morals. So are you beginning to see the difference between a good kind of a judgment and discernment and the kind that Jesus prohibits? A right kind of judgment, we'll see in just a moment here, is a godly discernment and a careful critique and even legal ruling at times. But the judgment that Jesus prohibits in his kingdom people is judgmentalism, censoriousness, 
a self-righteousness and pride that believes I must ensure that others live up to my standard of righteousness or even making sure that others live up to what I believe to be God's standard of righteousness. There's a difference between a godly, careful critique and perhaps a, a, a loving conversation around these things and regarding oneself as needing to make sure everyone does what's right. And here's the heart of the problem behind such an attitude. It regards self as having the authority and the kind of spiritual competence that only God has. Because while Christians are qualified, hear me say this, we are qualified and competent and even obligated to speak into each other's lives with correction and edification when the situation calls for it, Christians are at the same time not qualified to fully accurately assess the hearts and motives of others. You see the difference there? Because you see, you may actually get it right sometimes. You may actually be able to tell. I think I can tell what's going on in this person's heart. But God gets it right every time. You're fallen, you're sinful, you're lacking, just like the person that you might be judgmental towards. But God is perfectly righteous. You could be mistaken in your analysis of a situation and then attribute motives or actions in a faulty manner. But God is just in his judgment. And so you and I do not get to stand in the place that is reserved for God alone. And that place of judgment that belongs to God is the point that Jesus makes in verse 2. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. In other words, you will be held to the same standard that you hold others to. Are you sure that's what you want? That's why I say that this kind of harsh judgmentalism is dangerous. It's dangerous because if you are judging ungraciously and harshly, if you're on board with harsh judgment towards someone else, you better be on board with the same kind of judgment aimed at you. Because if your standard is really the standard, it logically follows that you too will be judged with the exact same standard. But rather, might it be that you would rather God show mercy to you to be gracious to you even when you do things that are wrong and sinful. That's, in fact, what Jesus is getting at when he uses the word measure here. The Jewish rabbis used to speak of God's judgment in terms of two measures, justice and mercy. And we know that it's not like God isn't just when he is merciful to a sinner or that he isn't merciful when he judges a sinner, but you get the idea. You either get what you deserve or you don't. And Jesus is saying, if you want to make sure everyone else gets what they deserve, you better be okay with you getting what you deserve. Frankly, it reminds me of the debate and the division all over the American church during the height of COVID. There were some Christians who regarded those who wanted to wear masks as being sinfully fearful, afraid of sickness or death. 
But by that same measurement, some of those same Christians were guilty of the exact same thing. Fearfulness just aimed somewhere else. Because some who accused those who wanted to wear masks as being fearful were fearful too of government overreach or of the left's agenda or of a lack of natural immunity or whatever other thing it might be. And I'm not just talking about our church. This was all over America. We were not unique. Perhaps those then didn't realize that with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And isn't it true that we want God to judge us with mercy and with grace? Isn't it true that those who are in Christ have been extended mercy and grace? And so shouldn't Christians, Christ's kingdom people, of all people, be the ones most characterized by grace and mercy in their judgment, in their measure, just like God has done for them and as we want him to continue to do for us? Friends, if you're more of a fault finder than a grace giver, you'd better watch out because with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. But again, these words from Jesus are not a call to abandon our senses or our role as disciples that are called to edify one another, to stand for the truth, to proclaim righteousness. And that's where verse 6 is helpful. I want to skip down to verse 6 where we see that humble discernment is necessary. He says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is quite an interesting verse. Some scholars have debated whether or not it should even be included in the Sermon on the Mount, wondering if the seeming disconnectedness from the rest of the discourse at that moment means that it was added later by somebody else. I don't think that's the case. But what verse 6 is saying does actually have direct application to what the opening verses have to do with judgmentalism. I think what Jesus is saying in verse 6 is that his disciples' witness must not be totally indiscriminate. There is a kind of judgment that is included in this. He's calling here for a discernment, a measured and tactical approach, a careful and shrewd analysis of the effectiveness of the presentation of the gospel. Jesus here speaks of dogs and of pigs. Now to us today, both dogs and pigs are commonly regarded as adorable and lovable in varying measures depending on who you are and your affinity for them. But to Jesus' original audience, this was not nearly as common at that time. In fact, maybe to all of his original listeners, the mention of dogs did not conjure up warm and fuzzy feelings of Lady and the Tramp and Paw Patrol and Wishbone and Toto and Scooby-Doo. No, when Jesus, and when Jesus said pigs, they didn't think of Charlotte's Web or Babe. No, dogs and pigs in that culture and society were regarded as unclean and dangerous. Dogs were rarely domesticated, and they roamed around without any training or grooming. They rummaged through the trash. They stayed away. 
when Kate and I spent some time in Puerto Rico not long ago, there were wild dogs everywhere, all over the streets of the cities, napping on the sidewalks, kind of walking up to the businesses and saying hi to people. That is foreign to us where we live. But the dogs in Puerto Rico weren't mangy and dangerous. They were generally, I'm sure there were some exceptions, but generally friendly. The Dave and Marina Joe Fields told us that many of them were, were nice enough and were kind of regarded as family members from people, even though they were wild. But the dogs that Jesus is depicting here were unpleasant and unfriendly. Even pigs are apparently increasing in their domestication in our society. Have you seen, like, I have some of these videos of people who have pigs, like dogs in their house, walking around and jumping up on the couch and whatever else? I've seen videos on social media with pigs running freely inside the house uh, in the same way that our two dogs do. But the pigs that Jesus called to the disciples' imagination were not only not domesticated, they were actually not even allowed to be eaten by Jews. And so it's not like you could find pigs even in a Jew's life as to, as to be raised for meat, like we'll see at the Adams County Fair later this summer. In fact, for many Jews, pigs also had an association with pagans. And so the image in Jesus' metaphor is not of cuddly and sweet farm pets, but of wild and unclean, dangerous animals that the Jews would not have associated with or been endeared to. They were disallowed, they were unacceptable, they were unclean, they were out of bounds. And Jesus says in verse 6, not to offer to them what is holy or pearls. Now, when Jesus speaks of pearls, I think he's using the same kind of language and imagery that he uses a few chapters later. I'll just put it on the screen for you from Matthew 13, verses 45 through 46, where he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. I think, and the commentators I read as well think, that it seems like Jesus is using the image of a pearl and the parallel then of what is holy, to refer to the kingdom message of God, the news that he reigns and offers salvation and forgiveness to all who believe. And in fact, if you dig into the metaphor a little bit more and think about these fictional pigs who are not domesticated at all like they are sometimes today, and how those wild pigs might respond to being fed pearls, it adds even more light to what Jesus is saying. Think about a wild pig expecting fruits or nuts or, or, or vegetables and then is given pearls and the pearls hurt their teeth or their mouths instead of providing sustenance that they're looking for. They're going to do exactly what Jesus says in the second half of verse 6. They will trample those pearls underfoot and then turn to attack you. And so Jesus is telling his disciples not to give the message of the kingdom And it's a rival to people that are like angry, wild pigs and dogs. Because doing so will not only be ineffective, it may even be dangerous. In fact, this is similar as well. I'd invite you to turn maybe just a couple of pages to Matthew 10, to what he says in Matthew 10, verses 11 through 14. When Jesus is sending out his apostles, and he says, starting in verse 11, whatever town or village you enter... Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. 
As you enter the house, greet it, and if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Sounds kind of judgmental, doesn't it? He says, find out who is worthy. Ascertain and discern who is not worthy. Then shake shake the dust off your feet when you leave if it turns out they're not worthy. He's calling for analysis and judgment here, isn't he? If it seems to you that so-and-so is not worth your time and effort anymore in the message spreading of the message of the kingdom, move on. He says similar things in Matthew 18 when he calls believers to go to people who have sinned against them. And then if they don't respond correctly, bring someone else. And if they still don't respond correctly, eventually it gets to the point where you kick them out of the church. He calls for discernment of right and wrong. He calls for the confrontation of Christians in sin. And that does require judgment, analysis, discernment, and decisions. And so, in Matthew 7, 1 and 2, Jesus is not calling for an indiscriminate or ignorant turning of a blind eye to anyone and anything that is sinful and wrong and just saying, I don't want to judge. He can't mean that because if he did, then verse 6 and these other passages, Matthew 10, Matthew 18, and so forth, wouldn't make any sense. And so it is not that all judgment is wrong. What Jesus condemns is self-righteous, proud judgmentalism. And judgmentalism comes from a heart of self-righteousness. And that is so often the issue for Jesus with the Jews, isn't it? Already has been, will continue to be throughout the book. Self-righteous, condescending, harsh and prideful judgment of actions and motives that regards self as better than the other. And that is the point of verses 3 through 5. Jesus says here that hypocritical criticism is blinding. Look at verses 3 through 5 again. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I use the word blinding in this point purposefully because that's the image Jesus is using here, describing people who are quick to notice others' problems while failing to notice the glaring problems of their own. The image here starts with a person who's got ostensibly some sawdust in their eye. Remember, Jesus was a carpenter. And to have sawdust in your eye is a serious problem. I remember getting a a little cinder in my eye when I was a kid on a train ride, and it was excruciating. But the image gets comical when the Lord introduces another character. This person doesn't just have sawdust in their eye. They've got a log in there. And yes, it is meant to be, I think, kind of comical. Some translations, maybe the translation you have says beam. Jesus, a carpenter, 
referring to large planks of wood that would have been used for building houses, perhaps 40 feet long by 5 feet wide. These are not Lincoln Logs. This is more like a telephone pole. I don't see quite as many of those today, but there's one right over there on the corner. I remember thinking of it as a telephone pole when I was a kid, reading this passage. Either way, you get the point. The image here that Jesus is, is displaying is that it is ludicrous to have a telephone pole, a log, a massive wooden beam in your eye, and then presume to be able to see clearly enough to help someone get some sawdust out of theirs. I mean, just imagine walking around with a telephone pole sticking out of your face, trying to help someone get a piece of sawdust out of their eye. Not only are you not qualified to give someone with sawdust in their eye any help getting it out, you yourself need major help ASAP. You've got a telephone pole sticking out the middle of your face. How are you supposed to help someone with some sawdust in their eye? It's not going to work. You can't see. And in fact, Jesus uses a stern word to describe the person with a glaring problem of their own, daring to pass judgment on someone else's problems. And the word is hypocrite. We've seen it before, we'll see it again. It is the height of hypocrisy to claim to have the authority and wisdom to offer analysis of someone else's conduct and motives when you've got glaring and unaddressed problems of your own. It's like when a child is playing with a hose in the backyard, even though they're not allowed to, and then Joy's dumping a bucket of water over his sister's head. But then when the sister takes that same bucket and dumps water on his head, he runs inside crying, telling on her for playing with the hose like she's not supposed to. Children, have you ever done anything like that? I'm seeing some smiles. That's what Jesus is talking about here ungracious judgment on someone as if you've never done the same thing or worse. Or when Christian A is critical of Christian B in some way, while Christian A has got one or more issues in her family, in her heart, in her relationship with other church family members, These things really ought to have a much greater priority of her attention than Christian B's issues over here. Because it's not that Christian B's issues over here don't matter. They do. It's that Christian A cannot help Christian B effectively until Christian A has her own stuff sorted out. Once Christian A has the log out, Jesus says clearly in the text, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, getting the sawdust out of Christian B's eye is important. Helping Christian B should be on the heart and mind of Christian A, but you're a hypocrite if you try to do it without addressing the log in your own eye first. It's blinding. And you know, my friends, this is just reality. There are logs metaphorical, figurative logs coming out of people's eyes all over this room right this moment. And if that shocks or offends you, you may need to refresh yourself on the doctrine of sin and depravity. There's logs all over the place. Do 
Wow, this whole time I've been preaching about the need to remove your own logs before we worry about other people's specks. Some of you may even have been thinking about someone else's logs instead of your own. You're going, preach it, brother. So-and-so or such-and-such an organization or group or church has logs in their eyes. They should have dealt with that before they called me out on such-and-such. You're missing the point. If that describes you and your attitude, I'm afraid that's proof positive. You have a log in your eye. You've got to deal with it. That log is blinding you even to the fact that you have a log in there in the first place. It's blinding. Self-righteous, hypocritical, prideful criticism is blinding because if your study of Scripture, you're listening to a sermon, you're learning in a Bible class, your discussions in men's group and fellowship group and the women's partner study are all leading you to an attitude of standing over someone else instead of recognizing your desperate need for the grace of God, it is leading you to think about someone else's sin before your own man. You are in dangerous territory. You are lining up more like a Pharisee than a kingdom person of God. The Pharisees were hypocrites, and Jesus called them out on it. Would you turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12? 2 Samuel chapter 12. In the story here, the prophet Nathan comes to David after David's sins of conspiring murder of Uriah to cover up Bathsheba's pregnancy that resulted from David's adulterous affair with her. And here's what happens, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to, sent Nathan to David, and he, Nathan, came to him, David, and said to David, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, used to eat of, the, of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. David was incensed that someone could do such a thing. But he didn't realize that it was he that Nathan was talking about the whole time. 
He was the rich man in the story. Uriah was the poor man. The little lamb was Bathsheba. David had stolen another man's wife. He had exercised his riches and power unjustly, and he deserved the judgment that he himself proclaimed on the rich man in Nathan's parable. Friends, some of us need to hear the words, you are the man. You know how sinful you are. How could we be so judgmental towards another person with such pride and disdain and ungraciousness? We have sinned in the past. We have sins we haven't dealt with yet. And while we're so upset that some brother or sister in Christ is sinning in some way, you have a massive telephone pole sticking out of your face. What makes you think you have the right to evaluate and regulate the sawdust in their eye? But not only that, what makes us think we have the right or ability to determine the motives and the heart behind what others are doing? Sure, you may be right sometimes, but God is right all the time. So leave that kind of judgment to him. You're not the judge. Judge not. Stop judging. Now, of course, I've said it already. I'll say it again. Jesus isn't saying never speak into anyone's life. And of course, the world and many Christians misunderstand and misuses this passage as a get-out-of-jail-free card for their moral relativism and unrepentant sin. And God forbid that that would be the case with us. But that doesn't change the fact that standing in harsh and disdainful and prideful judgment over someone for something in their life, whether legitimate or not, while you've got your own messy, glaring problems to deal with is the height of pharisaical hypocrisy. And we need the message of the gospel to confront us in our sin. We need Jesus to remind us of the salvation freely given to those who repent and trust in Christ and to assure us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive and cleanse us. So how does this passage then speak into your life? The application questions on the order of worship, one of them is essentially asking this. Have you been judgmental towards someone or a group of people, and do you need to repent? Maybe there's a brother or sister in Christ in this church or another church. Maybe you're presuming to know the heart motivation of some individual Christian or a group of Christians in a denomination or a whole local church somewhere saying ungracious things behind their backs, holding harsh and prideful opinions regarding their own beliefs and practices, esteeming yourself as having it more figured out than they do. You're more wise, you're more understanding than they are. All the while, you've got a telephone pole sticking out of your eye. And if that's true of any of us, we need to repent. We need to repent of our hypocrisy. We need to deal with the beams in our own eyes and then be better equipped to do the work of discipleship that God has called all of us who are Christians to do as brothers and sisters together seeking to follow Jesus. And you might be asking, but how does this work? Because we're always going to have sins we're dealing with. And so none of us is ever going to arrive. We're not going to be perfect until glory. So are you saying that I can never offer any kind of critical 
corrective observation or, observation or instruction in the life of someone else since I'm a sinner because I'm daily doing the work of killing my sin and doing battle with my lusts and passions and desires. Friends, I think that's where a major key to this whole thing comes in, and the key is humility. Jesus himself and the rest of the New Testament calls us, commands us to speak into each other's lives. And so we don't get to say, well, I just have all kinds of things and, uh, you know, I'll never arrive, so I'm just never going to be part of that discipleship thing that we're all called to. No, we must speak into each other's lives. So then how do we do it? Humbly. Graciously. Because when you gradually increase in your understanding that you are the worst sinner you know, and I hope that's your heart attitude, that you're the worst sinner you know. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And when you continue to recognize and identify the serious problems that you have had in the past and have in the future, or have in the present, and may have in the future, And when you grow in your understanding of the grace of God in Jesus Christ extended to you at the cross, bruised and beaten and bloodied for your sin, then you will naturally, gradually become a more and more gentle, gracious, merciful, patient, and kind in your attitude towards other sinners. Oh, yes, my friend, you may discern issues and address them. And you should when God calls you to do so. You may need to confront a brother or sister in their sin when God leads you to do so by his spirit and through his word. But if you do, you must not and you will not do so harshly, judgmentally, assuming motives, being unmerciful, and standing in self-righteous, prideful judgment. Rather, you will remember that it was your sin, just as much as theirs, that led Jesus to the cross. And you'll remember that it's your responsibility and your continued need to put off your own sin and to be putting on good works. And so, humble discernment, yes, Yes, self-righteous judgment and condemnation and haughty criticism, God forbid. Do not judge, Jesus says. Do not assume motives. Do not presume to be qualified for an accurate discernment on any given issue in someone's life. Be humble. Repent of your own sins. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent of your hypocrisy. Deal with your own sin and then graciously and lovingly move towards your brothers and sisters in Christ. Help them get that sawdust out and grow as disciples together. Would you pray with me, please? Our merciful and gracious God, you who are pleased to condescend to speak to us through your word, Grant all of us grace that we might be not just hearers of the word, but doers also. Give us grace through your Holy Spirit that we may believe and live what your word says. The grass withers, the flower fades, but your word stands forever. 
May we bring glory and honor to your name in all that we do as you conform us into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. All this we ask in his name. Let's continue in prayer.